Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and it is the 19th of February, 2012, and I'm here with Audrey Waters from Hack Education. Thanks cool. for being here, Audrey. Oh, thanks, Steve. You've had a prolific week. <laughs> I have been. I have been prolific. <laughs> You've kept me busy. So much for cutting back on. Oh, I didn't say I was cutting back on my writing. Just cutting back on writing elsewhere. So. Well, it was all very interesting. I wanted to start with something. I was on a plane this week, and I've been reading a book called A Tree Grows in Brooklyn because my eighth grade daughter is reading it. I had never read it. And I was alternating between reading that and reading a book called uh, Learning by Heart by Roland Barth. And I made a big note in the margin of Learning by Heart. Um, he talks a lot about teachers as learners and principals as learners. And I said, wouldn't it be amazing if the principal came in to the history class because he was really interested in, say, a certain thing about World War II and actually was a student in the class of the history teacher? And then I I started, I didn't open my book because I was on a Kindle. I read a chapter in A Tree Grows in Brooklyn where the janitor goes in and attends one of the classes with the students. And I thought, wow, what a vision. Yeah. I think that this recognition um, that, you know, that we need, you know, that I think we hear a lot of lip service about lifelong learning. Um, and and I do mean lip service. I mean, I, I think that people sort of talk a lot about it and that we really actually, I think, very few of us sort of walk the walk when it comes to sort of to to putting ourselves in in the you know in the seats so to speak uh, as as students. One of the great points that Roland makes is that universities do this very well, that the students see the faculty and see them as learners because the faculty are working out problems at that time. And I think we're going to get to this when we start talking about MITx. But before we do so, there's a story that you were almost not going to tell. Right. But you you did tell it. So tell us about Airy Labs. Well, this, you know, I've I've sort of had some inside um, sort of inside news about um, a, a education gaming startup um, that was sort of sort of hit the rocks. Um, and I'd spoken to several people who were um, employee employees there that sort of said, you know, things are going very poorly here. Um, and it looks as though there were some uh, posts online about sort of mismanagement at the startup. And I thought, I didn't really want to be the person to sort of break the news, um, partially because I feel like there's mismanagement at startups all the time. Startups fail. Um, startups fail all the time. And I, I felt... I felt sort of too close to the story to, to talk about it. But um, after TechCrunch, TechCrunch wrote the story and broke the news. Um, and I feel like the, it is an important story to tell in no small part because the CEO and founder is one of the um, one of Peter Thiel's fellows, one of the 20 um, young students, 20 under age 20, that Peter Thiel paid $100,000 to drop out of school. Um, and I was really... Um, I'm really mortified at the fact that we could um, that, that 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 a startup could implode in such a spectacular way with with no sort of guidance and mentorship and leadership from other people in the entrepreneurial community or in the education technology entrepreneurial community or particularly um, from the Thiel Foundation, which I felt you know gave these you know gave a bunch of students money. Um, and clearly hasn't been giving them any sort of guidance on how to actually become an entrepreneur. Um, I felt felt was very irresponsible all around, irresponsible on the part of um, sort of the parents involved, investors involved, um, and and the Thiel Foundation. And I feel terrible. I mean, I feel I feel bad because these are young, very very young kids who who are involved in this. So, I mean, on, at one level, you know, this story may be getting more play than it deserves because it's really not relevant to learning. I mean, it's you know, it's it's about bad management. But at the other level, it it it's a a window into the what you call the ridiculous Silicon Valley hubris and kind of the money driving here, isn't it? I think so. I mean, and and there's part of there's this. You know, there's this real mythology, right? That that what what we need to solve the problems of the future are young, uh, sort of young blood, and anybody sort of once you've hit, 
I mean, I would say sort of once you've hit 25 in Silicon Valley, you're a wash up, right? And I would say too that there's there's a real powerful story that college dropouts are some are somehow the the key the key to a more innovative um, innovative entrepreneurial future. And of course, you can sort of point to a few well-known college dropouts um, in terms of sort of Silicon Valley mythology, but I think that all of that seems to sort of uh, seems to sort of have coincided with some, you know, high times in Silicon Valley where everyone's sort of making money hand over fist, um, so, so it appears, uh, and without really sort of any responsibility of, of, of looking more critically at what they're building, how they're building, um, and sort of the, the, the bottom line, not just in terms of the pocketbook, but so sort of your responsibility to your community. I think this is some of the best writing I've read from you. I want to read a quote from this post. Uh, it, it's the one that says that the young and high-scoring IQ and the Ivy League sanction know the best way forward. I mean, why ask someone who spent 20 years in the trenches as a teacher how to fix education? Let's instead ask 20-year-olds to come up with a fix for education and, of course, provide a healthy return on investment as they do so. It reminded me of Teach for America a little. Well, and I think that these are some of these are some of these models that we're seeing sort of spin up right now. Is that um, that you can that we that we are we're we're, we're expecting um, young and high energy kids. And I was actually sort of blasted by another field fellow for calling them kids, but you know, I'm sorry. Anybody who <laughs> anyone who's my son's age is like. I, they're a kid, um, but I think that we are at, we're at, we're we're asking kids without a lot of experience to shoulder a lot of responsibility for moving things forward, and at the same time severing the relationship with with adults. Uh, sorry, grown ups again was this, was perhaps a bad term to describe it, but with with people who do actually have experience and do have um, some wisdom to share, and I think that uh, and I think that. It's all it's all well and good to sort of support uh, to support sort of young folks doing innovative things, but there still are lessons to be learned and ways in which um, folks who sort of gone before have really important insights. Even if sort of even if we haven't sort of radically changed the world quite right, we we do sort of know some things about how how the world works. Yeah, it's kind of intriguing because if you um, if you think about um, if you think from the perspective that I that I believe that you and I come from um, it feels like a lot of the problems in education are the result of uh, political and policy decisions related to high stakes testing and that those problems aren't necessarily ones that necessarily that need to be solved by technology they're in large part the result of misguided thinking about how to get results I think that that I think that that's precisely right and I think that you know, part of the danger when you think of education as requ—I mean, it's not just sort of education requiring a technology fix; that it's actually like a technology product fix. So it isn't as though sort of it's not enough to sort of say, you know, we'll put computers in the classroom and that's going to quote fix education. But it really is down to sort of you know, sort of specific hardware sales, specific software sales, and this is a product like that a product is going to solve. Um, it's sort of like it's like the pharmaceutical industry. It's you know we have a pill we have a pill to suit, solve every possible symptom you could ever you could ever you know complain about. Fascinating. There's there's also kind of a secondary shadow feature to the story, right? Which is that the um, that we've been told there's a little bit of a glamour version about what's happening in the adventure world in Silicon Valley, and then there's the reality. Was this a little bit of the reality peeking through? I think this is very much of the reality, and I mean, and part of that reality is that, again, you know, companies, startups, startups fail all the time, and I think that everyone is so exuberant right now about the possibility of um, of becoming sort of the next Mark Zuckerberg with your um, web tech uh, startup that I think that we sort of forget, um, sort of we're sort of we're sort of getting ahead of ourselves, and it, particularly when that comes to investor investors' money. And although, I mean, perhaps it was unclear. I mean, Peter Thiel didn't invest, 
quote, take, you know, take an investment stake in these kids' future, but he did give them sort of his a first investment in them. And I think that we're seeing so much money being, so much money being thrown around that um, that I think it, it's going to... I think it's it's going to end poorly. I mean, it's ended it's ended badly before. This isn't the first time it's happened. Interesting. Okay, we get to talk about robot grading again. <laughs> we do. MIT has opened registration for its first MITx online course. What's going on? So the they announced this was a very late 2011 announcement. Um, MITx and it it seemed clear at the time to be a competitor with Stanford's massive online classes um, and, and now with Udacity, another sort of effort to sort of have online education offered for free to, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds, hundreds of thousands of students. Um, this is under the MIT brand, sort of. Uh, you'll get, if you complete the class, you'll get a certificate that says you completed an MIT X class. Um, but you know that when when the plan was first revealed, uh, MIT said that they were going to charge for that certification. So the class itself would be free, right? The the information, the knowledge, the instruction would be f free. But if you wanted the piece of paper, uh, the the not degree, but if you wanted the piece of paper, you would have to you would have to pay for it. Um, this, for this first class, they aren't charging anything. Um, but again, this is you know this is an example of in order to sort of. So the argument goes, in order to scale to the level of hundreds of thousands of students, um, this requires an artificial intelligence grading machine um, to do so. It was very interesting for me to read the Roland Barth statement about the value of universities as being a highly transparent and visible learning environment. And I'm, um, I'm still not sold yet on these courses, and, and I hope there's a piece here that I'm missing, but is it possible that this is a case of, um, of even though you have the technology, it doesn't mean it's necessarily the best thing to do? I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, sort of gonna, I'm gonna be very interested in seeing sort of how this, how this moves forward. I mean, because I, I'm a, I should say, I'm a huge supporter of MIT OpenCourseWare. I think it is probably one of, I mean, it's such an important initiative, and I'm very interested in the way in which the MITx is actually situated in the OpenCourseWare offerings from MIT. So they're they're making sure that, um, for example, the prereqs, the prerequisites to this class, the MITx class, are offered as OpenCourseWare Scholar classes. Something we've talked about before. So I think it is. The, it is this new, interesting sort of development in open courseware. But again, yeah, I'm I'm not sure what I think about um, I'm not sure what I think about scaling like this. I think that it's great to sort of have content, um, educational content, be available, um, widely distributed, open, free, accessible. But I don't know what I think. I don't. I'm not sold on the idea that teaching and learning are scalable the same way that the delivery of electronic dissemination of, of, of educational content is, if that makes sense. I think there's a distinction. I hope there's a distinction. <laughs> I'm sure we'll <laughs> be figuring that out. Okay, so tell me what uh, Inkling is doing. Um, Matt McInnes, CEO and founder, says originally it's about disassembling the textbook. You seem to indicate now that it's about the production and human processes that go into bookmaking. Are these the same stories? I well, Inkling Inkling is an interesting company, and Matt is particularly interesting because he worked at Apple for a very long time, and I think that um, I think that had he you know I think had had Matt stayed at Apple, I think the textbook announcement from Apple would have been a very different one. I think that um, Matt. Um, the, the Inkling textbooks are quite different than just sort of digitizing, digitizing, making a PDF, and and sticking it onto the iPad. Um, they 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 really are sort of taking apart a textbook in an interesting way. So what what Inkling announced this week is that they're actually opening up the the technology that runs their publishing platform to other publishers. So this isn't. This isn't like the Apple iBooks author. This isn't sort of a DIY publishing tool. But this is a way that other, other, author, other publishers 
um, can take advantage of, of the Inkling um, platform, which is cloud-based. It's, it's a way that, I mean, in some ways, the, you know, even though desktop publishing changed publishing dramatically, there's still a lot of, if you've ever you know, published a, a book or even an article, there's still a lot of emailing of PDFs and handwritten comments that must be transcribed back into a system. It's still actually a very um, um, slow and bulky process. So in some ways, Inkling is just sort of streamlining the publishing process by having it be sort of cloud-based, a one access point for, for publishers and writers and um, illustrators and designers to work together. But on the other hand, I think there is this notion that Matt, that Matt thinks about content and in, in these little pieces, in that disassembling and re-engineering um, way. And so he, he told me that this was a semantic publishing platform. Um, which I, I think is sort of interesting in thinking about sort of the semantic web and the way in which we'll be able to um, connect information um, in, in, new, in new ways uh, because of technology. You know, it's, it's hard for me to fully feel like I um, can understand that disassembling the textbook was a message that I really connected with. Mm-hmm. But I'm, um, this is a little bit more complex, and, and I'm, I'll be interested to see if, it, um, if, if I come to it with a little bit more understanding as the story moves on. Um, I keep thinking about live binders, mm-hmm. right, and the aggregation, the aggregation of content that's already on the web, that's already been kind of published in some form. Um, is is live binders a part of that disassembly? I mean, is that kind of the beginning of this? The textbook is a as a disassembled product. I think. I mean, I think it is. I think that what I think that um, I think that live binder still very much focuses on the content, and I think once you have the semantic element to it, it means that you're going to be connected to some of the met. You'll, you can sort of connect the the metadata around content, so it's not so it's not just sort of looking at pulling together content in terms, but it's also thinking about um, how do you pull together um, content based on um, on some of the other the other ways in which you can think of it. So it's it's not just sort of this is an example of a good biology website, but this is a eighth grade biology website that um, addresses this particular topic in this particular way with hands on experimentation. So there's just more more data for you to sort of assess. Um, how those how those learning objects are interesting or important to you. I'm glad you understand it. <laughs> because if I had to make a choice between the metadata piece <laughs> and the ability to have conversation around the existing content, I, I, I've seen so many projects that, that tried so hard to organize at such a high level but then never actually gained traction. And I keep thinking, aren't we learning that it's about the conversation? Um, I think that perhaps this is perhaps this is sort of the the folklorist and the archivist in me that I I and someone who sort of the li- like the the would be librarian that I think that there's something about like having you know the the beauty of the card catalog is you want to actually have you know be able to find your title by approaching it for the for a number of different searches in the card catalog whether it's author date subject topic. Um, and so on. So I think that the metadata, the metadata piece, I think is in, is important for discovery. But I, I mean, of course, I, I, I would, uh, I think that I would rather have conversations as well. But I do like, I do like my, I do like my card catalog. <laughs> <laughs> well, Matt's Matt's messing up my fire your textbook <laughs> phrase. <laughs> okay, so uh, another area in which I'm going to admit just not fully understanding the appeal is the LMS plus the app store. Uh, that seems to really appeal to you. So help me understand it. Well, the LMS, the LMS does not appeal to me at all. In fact, if I had a nickel for every time I was pitched a story on an ed tech startup building an LMS, I would be a very, very, very rich woman. Um, the, I, I think that the, the, the learning management system as a whole is sort of a, um, sort of need uh, much like we, we could sort of fi- fire the textbooks. We should sort of perhaps fire the LMS as well. I think what's interesting about the LMS plus App Store in this case is that this App Store piece. And I don't know that this startup. This is a startup called Chalkable. They're very very new out of the gate. Um, 
I don't think that they've nailed it yet, but I do think that they're thinking about some pretty important issues. Um, the main one being how do you discover how do you discover good educational content, um, particularly as we move to the app store. Um, it's really tricky to find. Um, it's not. I don't just mean sort of age-appropriate content in the iTunes store, for example, but quality content that that meets a need for a specific um, for a specific grade or a specific topic. Um, so I think discovering good content is really important. And then I think sort of getting in the, getting it easily into the hands of a classroom is another challenge as well. Um, we've talked about this before. That you know that. Uh, um, the, a lot of these devices, the, the iPad and even the Android, they're really geared towards an individual consumer and not to, not to having things work well in a school setting. So I think it's an interesting opportunity. I'm not sure if Chalkable will be the folks to do it. Um, but then I think, and then I think integrating the software fully with, you know, with your, with some of your, uh, with some of your grade book and, uh, and other student information systems things too. It's a, they're taking on everybody. I mean, like I think I said in that story, they are taking on Pearson, um, Amazon, Google, Apple. So go team. Good luck. <laughs> well, I remember the the flack that uh, Bezos got at Amazon when nobody understood the model. So with some humility, my saying I don't understand the model doesn't mean they're not doing a really cool or interesting thing. Um, the, the app piece is very interesting because it feels as though it's uh, the complexity of this app environment keeps growing. First, there was this concern about um, uh, the the kind of gatekeeping function that um, the app marketplaces um, provide and the, the sort of the tariff involved in anything coming into the iPhone. Right. Um, then, then there's the question of... Um, the storing of your personal data when you've allowed the app to look for your friends, right? Right, and these sort of recent revelations about these companies storing all of this data, and now this question, you know, from the FTC about apps and COPPA, right? Right. So it feels like this is getting pretty darn complicated. I think it's getting really complicated, and I think that you know, I think that I mean, I mean that's not even discussing sort of how do you actually get you know, 25 copies of, um, of a particular app, uh, um, whether it's a web app or, a, or you know, a, 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 a native app on a mobile device, how do you get those into the hands of your students? Um, I think that there's all sorts of sort of technological billing um, privacy hurdles that we have to work out. Are we, I guess we're going to, we'll, we'll be leading into the HTML5 discussion, but it would be interesting to see if this actually ends up being a non-issue as HTML5 becomes more prevalent. Well, I mean, yeah, I, I think that, I mean, I think that this is sort of, these are some of the questions that I've been sort of asking folks about that, and I don't, I don't actually know. I mean, I think that the, you know, the folks who are interested in the web are perhaps um, on a different team than folks who are interested in some of these native apps. Okay, um, you. Uh, uh, so I knew there was a story you weren't breaking, right? <laughs> that you ended up talking about the Area Labs. Yes. Then there was a story that you alluded to last week that you were going to be a part of. Yes. And uh, and that's obviously this iPads in Auburn, Maine. Yes. So tell us about that. Well, I remember, you know, I remember at the beginning of the year when we talked about my predictions, and I said, I said to you, we're going to see a study come out that said that has found that iPads make no difference in learning, and I was. I was fully convinced that that was going to be what um, what the folks in Maine discovered, um, and and full sort of full disclosure here. I actually um, my little brother lives in Maine, and he's actually quite close friends with uh, Damian Beeble, who the one of the uh, one of the researchers on this. And I know Damian, and I know that he's. Um, I think he looks very carefully and seriously at education technology, and I was just positive that he was going to find that they did nothing. And I ha so I was wrong. Although I should say that, the, that these, these are very early results from the fact that Auburn, Maine gave one, lap, or one iPad to every kindergarten student. And they've been looking to see whether or not this impacted um, their literacy scores. And the initial results, um, it seems as though they had some impact. The scores were all 
the scores were all better for the students that had um, iPads, although not statistically, it wasn't statistically significant um, in most cases. But um, I think the one of the other one of the things I tried to stress in my story that this that this isn't just a matter of magically somehow iPads appeared in Maine and now the students there are smarter, which I think at least one technology blog ran with the headline that iPads makes iPads make kids smarter. Um, it's actually that this that this school district has been working very hard on sort of supporting professional development around literacy and supporting the teachers in um, using using these tools in the classroom. So this isn't just an iPads are magic story. There was so much good in this story, right? Be- because of that that history and push, they have years of data. Yes. That precede the introduction of the iPad. You've got Damien talking about pedagogy and teaching, you know, as being critical here. And then you've got research and random trials and assessments. I mean, this isn't just somebody throwing iPads in and saying, "Wow, magic has happened." Right. Clearly, this is this is very thoughtful. I read. Uh, it was interesting though. I, I at that point, I'm really jazzed up. And then, you know, you, you read the non-statistically um, important. Trending, trending positive, but not statistically significant, right? And then, but there was a substantial increase in scores on the hearing and recording sounds in words test. Yes. And I thought, well, this is interesting. This is really, really targeted. So is this this is this the case of good news appearing somewhere that wasn't fully expected? And if so, is it is this the kind of news that um, then allows for? sort of deep thought around that particular concern in teaching and learning rather than kind of the magical, magic carpet, this is going to lift everything? I think, I mean, well, I should say here too, I mean, I think that, again, this is this is sort of really early, really early results from, from what we're seeing, from what we're seeing in Maine. And even though I was on, I got on the phone with Mike Muir um, and, and Damien and Sue Doris, a principal at one of the schools, and we, t- and we talked about this. And I think that they're all, pretty excited about what they've discovered. I should say that they aren't going to be releasing some of the full the full um, information till the end of the year. So this is very this is, this is an an early glimpse um, at what happened, what what's happening um, with these students. And um, I mean I'm I'm trying I'm trying to be I think I'm trying to be cautionary because I I think that it's so easy for us to sort of say this is you know, here we have the ammo that every school district in America now needs to sort of find money in their budget to to do just this. And I think that um, I, d- I don't think that that's what we found. But I think, it, and I, but I think it raises some interesting questions about how, you know, how what is it about the iPad that would affect would affect that sort of um, phonetical awareness, right? What is it that it has? Is it that it has a read, you know, read aloud capability? Um, in a way that with some one-on-one time that a student wouldn't or ordinarily get in the classroom? I, I just don't, I don't know. I really like the, the direction this story takes us in terms of thinking deeply about the impact. And um, so kudos to them. Okay, your history of e-learning. Uh, this last week I talked to a language teacher who was amazed at how well teaching languages worked in a distance learning environment, granted asynchronous and synchronous. Um, but, but tell us about your history here. Well, this is, you know, which I mean, was a very, which was a very candid history, by the it way. It was a very candid history, but I think, you know, I, you know, trying to be transparent, particularly now that I'm, you know, I'm doing this research project for Mozilla, which is not directly related to this, but it is somewhat. And I, I think that, I mean, I think being honest about our own experiences with teaching and learning is it's often one of these unspoken things I think we particularly when it comes to um, particularly when it comes to education entrepreneurs that sort of take their own experience as the universal one for granted right that they had um, you know they had a terrible math teacher therefore all math teachers are terrible therefore Saul Khan is the savior of math like these are the sort of chain of equivalencies that I think that I hear all the time. So I just, I've been thinking a lot about sort of my own, my own experiences in learning. And, um, you know, I wanted to spend some time thinking about what it means to learn through a video. Um, and I had an experience in college 
because I did, I did drop out of school um, after a couple of years in college and ended up doing most of my degree in a distance learning. At the time, it really was sort of distance learning. Um, and I had a correspondence course that was all video. And just thinking about what it means, sort of the promise that we hear now, uh, particularly around SalCon, that the ability to sort of hit pause and rewind and pause and rewind is a technological advance. I mean, I think that my my story was is you know twenty twenty years ago, and so this isn't this isn't a technological advance um, necessarily. Um, so I just wanted to sort of spend some time thinking about my own experiences learning statistics in this case, which um, which I'm sure as anybody who <laughs> who's read my uh, my um, any of my stories know that I mean I do I mean I I do sort of struggle with I do need help when it comes to sort of the p value of a particular. Uh, uh, test out of Maine, for example. What does that mean? I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> Having never even taken statistics, I'm going to just let that one kind of quietly go by. But I, there were some comments. I noticed there was the first comment right off the bat was, I mean, this is not unique to, to, to this subject or to this way of studying. So much of what gets learned in our kind of current structured school system does not get remembered. True. Um, I, I, I think that that's, I think that that is true. And I think that, but I think that we need to sort of, is that, is that because it's a lecture, right? I mean, is there something about the lecture? Um, cause I, as I made clear to, to, after taking introduction to statistics, I took an SPSS class, which is a statistical, statistical software class. And I did very well in that. Um, it was a more hands-on, um, it was in a face-to-face -face setting, but it was very hands-on. I applied the knowledge I should have had from statistics to sort of solve actual problems. Um, and so, again, like, so these, these are sort of why I'm sort of telling these stories to sort of work through in my own head, at least for me, what, what worked. Um, because watching a video didn't really give me any conceptual, deep conceptual understanding um, of statistics. Okay, I think I counted four posts this week on this HTML5 project. Yes. The scratch. So what is Scratch for HTML5 and why would your readers even care? <laughs> well, I, I think that that's, that's a very good question, actually. I think that, um, so Mozilla, Mozilla is, um, has asked me to conduct a research project. Um, they're interested in helping boost web literacy. Um, and I think you know Scratch for HTML5 is sort of shorthand for the kind of tool that they'd like that they're that they're wondering if they should build, um, and the Scratch part of that equation is um, a, a, a tool for novices, something that doesn't require programming knowledge, but that takes you through thinking um, through sort of learning some of the foundational concepts to make to to to. Um, a gateway into programming. So Scratch is um, an MIT Media Lab project um, that teaches computational thinking. It a, has a graphic interface and it's very easy for quite young, uh, quite young children to learn, uh, to learn to build, to learn to program um, and make games and animation with it. So is there, is there a way to make a tool like that to help people, novices, children or adults, um, learn HTML5. Um, and of course, HTML5 is the latest version of HTML, and it's um, HTML plus CSS plus some JavaScript and a whole bunch of other sort of powerful um, programmatic things that aren't in earlier versions of HTML. Um, so sort of can we build a tool to help get folks building for the web? So a lot of interesting comments here. Maybe we can kind of lump them all together. But um, I was particularly struck by Julie Maloney's questions about whether or not this was authentic work. Yes. And whether or not teaching uh, HTML5 is actually the right place to, to begin teaching computational thinking. I think, I mean, uh, I think that Julie ha raised a number of really important questions about this uh, um, about this project, and I should say right now, this is very much um, exploratory. Sort of, Mozilla have said, to, have sort of told me, sort of go out and talk to as many smart people about this as I can, which is great because I'm um, I'm able to talk to folks who I know have spent time sort of teaching 
um, teaching student, young students computer science, folks who, um, uh, and folks who sort of teach HTML. And, and in the case of Julie, she actually is the person who taught me HTML. Um, but I think she raises an interesting point about sort of where is the demand right now? Um, and don't we still need to sort of get folks really up to speed on HTML and how the web works before we sort of dash off down the rabbit hole of HTML5? Yeah, I almost even heard kind of the uh, Seymour Papert clapping in the background, Julie's comments, right? I mean, that that um, you need to really be thinking about what what's important to be teaching and at what place you start. I also felt like I was hearing Richard Stallman clapping in the background when Glenn Bull talks about the tension between openness and proprietary. Yes. Um, and um, and sort of the impact on education of the sort of proprietary structure of apps. Well, and I think that you know the uh, um, I was very happy actually to start to start off the series of interviews with with talking with Glenn Bull, um, and I think that it, because partially I think because he has this really long. Um, history in thinking about this very subject, but he made a really a couple of really important points about sort of what happens when um, when our both the technology that we're using in schools and the technology we're building for schools move to native apps and move into these walled gardens, even on the web, move into these walled gardens on the web, and sort of how can we how can we um, you know, because there are actually lots of lots of tools that make it very easy to build. Um, native native mobile apps. I mean, interestingly, Google's own Scratch-like tool is Android App Inventor. So they aren't teaching they aren't teaching students how to build web apps or websites. They're teaching you how to build Android apps. You know, and, and sort of so sort of, we don't you don't have to be too cynical to sort of know why that might be. I mean, somewhat cynical maybe. <laughs> But I think it's important, you know, it's important to think about where, where our development energy is going to um, in terms of who's building, what they're building, and what devices they work on. The elephant in the room for me, for me on this is still this question of um, you can build this tool or you can, you can provide the opportunity for this to be taking place in schools, but is it actually going to have much of an impact on the current ed climate? And and maybe that's not fair, because even with Scratch's sort of broad adoption, well, let's that's mm -hmm. it's not necessarily broad adoption. Let's say Scratch has, you know, some good level of adoption. It doesn't feel like it's very broad. It doesn't feel like it's impacting our larger sense of what should take place in education. Is there any is there anything to distinguish this this idea, the Mozilla Scratch for HTML5 idea, that would have more impact than Scratch has had? Well, I. I I don't. I mean, I don't know. I, I think that. I mean, I think that these are. I think that that's a really good and important question. I mean, I do wonder if. I mean, I feel like we still have to do a lot of explaining, even what we mean by computational thinking and why computational thinking matters. Although I, I'm, I hope that that's the larger argument too. That people are so, um, will will sort of pay attention to what skills are we not, what skills are we sort of really missing, and I don't mean. I don't mean a, a technical skill like knowing how to use Excel, for example, or um, you know. But but I mean the sort of computational thinking and the importance of um, logic and um, systematic ways of, of of thinking that that aren't. I mean, I think that the potential there for for huge change lies in something like Scratch. Yeah. I, that's really interesting. I'll have to think about that. I mean, I, um, I just, I love Scratch, and I've, I'm, uh, and I've, and I've loved what they've done. But I don't feel as though it's actually impacting the larger um, narratives or ideas about education. And that's probably not fair. Um, I, I did love Vanessa Generelli's um, kind of focus on the importance of a community, authentic audience. Yeah, we actually we actually ended up. Um, I think it was uh, we and and she's actually a, she's a grad student at Harvard, but she's working in the in, in the media lab. This term is her research project, and we ended up talking about sort of writing writing on writing for the web, which I, I think isn't it's it sh we shouldn't divorce that from 
programming or, or you know, building, building for the web shouldn't sort of not be writing for the web. So I think our conversation went down a really different path in which we were, we were exactly, you know, we were talking about what does it mean to sort of do your work um, um, with an audience, with the web, um, for the web in this way. We were thinking about it in terms of writing, but I think the same thing, that the same thing ideally should hold true with any web building endeavor. Yeah, which um, sort of consistently reminds me of all these interviews I did on open source and how all of that work was done outside of the traditional school system and how it feels as though some of the most authentic work students are doing, whether it's something on YouTube or writing they're doing for fan fiction, that so much of this is actually taking place outside of schools because it's authentic and because there's a real community. Right. And I think, you know, and I think, I think that, you know, the partially because there's not the expectation to sort of have every, every exercise be one move towards um, upping this, upping the standardized test score. I mean, I think that, you know, I think that that's why, that's why some of these after school projects and library projects that I see are so exciting is because no one's overtly sort of talking about how this is going to sort of boost, boost student achievement on the next, uh, you know, on the next uh, standardized math test. Hmm. Um, Phil Wagner says, if I if I remember correctly, sort of directly, uh, you don't need to emphasize badges, contests, or points, but rather project-based learning. Yes, and I loved that. I loved that too, and I think that um, I think that you know I think that but I think that the the the, 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 the trick and one of the things that I think Phil is working on is sort of how do we help put the tools into and sort of put the right tools into the hands of both students and teachers so that they actually can build the things they do, so that they can actually can, whether it's, you know, build a website or he's created a very cool little Android app to make it easy for, easier for physics students to collect data. Sort of how can we help sort of build, build better tools and, and get them into folks' hands so that, they, so, that they, so that the incentive doesn't have to be a badge, that you actually have, um, that, that we can sort of tap into sort of students' own curiosity and inquiry without having to sort of reward them with these other things. Was it Phil who said, by the end, I should have a website? Yes. Okay. I had a great idea. No, I had an idea. <laughs> <laughs> I can't say it's a great idea. I had an idea, though. But it would seem to me that if the outcome of this or the result was some kind of a product independent of the school, like a learning profile or a personal portfolio or something, that in fact that would be kind of a brilliant way to merge the two worlds. You know, that if in fact the end result was so tangibly valuable to the learner outside of the traditional education system, outside of it but informing their work in regular schools, that that would be really powerful. Well, and I have to wonder too about how much, you know, when we think about building for the, you know, building why students would want to sort of build for the web now, I think that this, I think that having just that sort of um, just that sort of site is 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 a really powerful argument. I mean, why would you know why you want to be able to showcase your work, whatever whatever your work is, whether it's sort of stories you've write or or you know photos you've taken or um, you know programs you, you know applications you've designed. Um, but I think having a way that you can actually own and showcase your own work on your own website is um, is powerful and and empowering, but also, frankly, like really important. Like really important uh, that you you know just for your sort of own professional um, and academic development. Well, you and I would agree on that. But <laughs> as I discovered from reading your post, Ivan Tribbles would not. Yeah, Ivan. That was amazing. I I didn't hear that, but it, it was, I guess it was two thousand and five when 2005, that originally took place. Right, and that was when I was, you know, Julie and I were both. Uh, Julie and I were both graduate students, PhD students at the time, and avid bloggers. Um, and it was became very clear that there were forces within the academy, and I should say that there are still forces in the academy that saw um, blogging as frivolous, um, and uh, and that they were sort of frowned upon that. Scholars would be willing to sort of open up their their both their sort of professional lives and their personal lives to to such sort of scrutiny on the web. 
that was one of the most interesting things I have read in a long time. You know, two two really strong messages for me. One was, you better not have a hobby, right? <laughs> I mean, you better not be having interest in anything other than what we think you should be interested in. And if you're human, you should hide it like the rest of us. Well, I mean, and this is, you know, one of the myriad reasons why I am not a professor at in a university is that, you know, my the path that my life took um, actually, you know, didn't, my life was, uh, um, you know, personal things happened that, in addition to sort of distrust of the academia in general, sort of personal issues happened. And I realized that there are many, there are many people in that institution that, that are just like Ivan Tribble, that they don't care what's happening in your own world. You really are just pure intellect and, of course, labor to teach classes, but mostly pure intellect. That was fascinating. Okay, I was at the 10-year anniversary meeting for um, the Horizons Report, and uh, I was very interested in your post on this because they've just released the EdTech version, this version for EdTech of the Horizon mm-hmm. Report, or I'm sorry, of, uh, Higher Ed. Higher Ed, right. Um, and, and, but I couldn't really tell what your take was on this. Well, I, you know, the, the Horizon, I don't know. I mean, the Horizon Report is sort of always interesting to me to sort of read it and see what the, what the sort of the committee has decided are the, the technologies that they see as sort of um, coming soon or sort of on the horizon but in the distance. Um, and it's sort of interesting to watch over time. One of, the, one of the things I wish that they would do is sort of say in each Horizon report list what's been on their horizon and what's come and gone from their report. Um, and and sort of, so we can see like that there are some things that have been on the horizon forever. Um, and then they're sort of, then they sort of, the next year the report will come around and sort of it's not there. And sort of thinking about like, well, what happened? Is it that, that these technologies have been widely adopted? Did we decide that they were no longer interesting um, or pertinent? Um, I think like augmented reality is a great one. Like that, for a couple of years, augmented reality was um, listed on, that was in, on the horizon, three to five years on the horizon. Um, and it's not on the, it's it's nowhere, uh, it's not mentioned in, specifically in this latest uh, report. So just thinking about like, what is the, like, what does the metaphor of the horizon mean in terms of technology that's where we sort of never quite get there. It's always in the distance. Um, no matter where you sort of where you stand positionally changes what you think the horizon is or could be, and it's just thinking about um, things are sort of always sort of things, things are always things feel always out of reach um, um, in ed tech. Uh, I think that the horizon reports metaphor just is a good reminder of that. Well, that was clever. It's I mean you kind of need to know how the report is generated, which is each year a group of people get together and they talk about what they think the trends are, and then I didn't really fully understand the value of the report. You know, until I talked to some people who are at universities who said, you know, we need to be thinking a couple of years ahead in terms of our planning for what we're going to do. But I was intrigued because there were 100 people gathered for this 10-year activity. And um, they allowed us to do a fair amount of brainstorming. And um, I, they asked us what we thought were sort of the most significant trends. And uh, I raised my hand and said, deinstitutionalization. <laughs> Right, and it touched on five or six of the other trends that were up on the board already. And I think, uh, you know, um, I'm, I can't speak for everybody who was in the room, but there were several people who said, "Wow, that really sort of ties a lot of these together." So I was really interested when the report came back from the ten-year meeting, and it didn't mention deinstitutionalization at all. And I thought, uh, Larry's going to come on the Future of Education show, and I get to ask him this question. But this isn't fully a democratic report when all is said and done. I mean, there's a staff that you mm-hmm. kind of go through this. And, and I actually kind of left feeling like the institutionalization is not necessarily a message that is going to be welcomed by those in institutions who are reading the report. <laughs> yeah. Good, good observation, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. Could that be? <laughs> No, but I think you know I was fascinated by this 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 year's report too, which and again like uh, I think to me it's 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 this very strange sort of document and maybe partially because it is sort of somewhat assembled by committee that some of the things are always like no brainers that that they're 
um, that they're there. And then some of them sort of seem, uh, sort of seem that they're sort of strangely in the distance when really they're closer, um, or or closer than than perhaps they're being accounted for here. But I thought that it was that um, that the, this year the things that are sort of right on the horizon are mobile apps and tablet computing. And I thought that that was a um, I thought that that was an shocker. Well, I thought that was a <laughs> shocker. I know it's like, um, but then too, sort of thinking about the resistance that I've heard, particularly among um, students to eat to digital textbooks. And I thought sort of, how do you reconcile the fact that, that these are such hot trends? And I, and I'm not saying that students don't want tablets, but I think that students are saying, Oh, we want tablets, but we, we still actually prefer our printed textbooks. And so it, it is, is um, interesting to think about sort of what's, um, sort of what are the, what are the institutional um, and industry impulses versus what students, what students are finding interesting. Okay, well said. Let's, let's move into the news. Um, help me to understand the no and Cengage lawsuit. Oh, this is a mess. Uh, is it when you said h- highlights? Is that the act of being able to highlight text? Yes. So this 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 is um, this is a very strange and potentially quite a troubling development if if Cengage sort of forces the issue on this. So so to back up. So No is of course the the app. They make a an app, a digital textbook app. Um, they don't. They're not a publisher themselves, but they have deals with the major textbook publishers to have their content in the app. Cengage is a publisher, and when No introduced highlights, so the ability to sort of highlight and share um, text, uh, text, Cengage pulled their content from the No app. Um, so saying that this was the, the, the act of highlighting and sharing highlights was, an, was copyright infringement. Um, and No is now suing for breach of contract. So the, the No lawsuit is about Cengage breach of contract, but Cengage is, Cengage is a, apparently um, opposing this notion of highlighting, sharing your, sharing your highlights, which um, I don't understand how that could not be fair use. Um, but... So Amazon does it. Amazon does do it. I wonder if there's an issue there as well. Although I think that you know Amazon, the the Kindle Amazon highlights. I don't. Yeah, I don't know if it's that No is somehow doing something else and collecting collecting the highlights for other purposes. Um, but it seem, certainly seems like if 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 the notion of sharing your highlights is a copyright infringement, we're in a world of hurt. Yeah, I was surprised and um, and intrigued. Uh, what does it matter that library.nu shut down? This was, uh, you know, I think that this this was a this was a website where uh, that a lot of a lot of folks would turn to for, um, in some cases, pirated uh, eBooks. But it was actually a place where you could find a lot of um, a lot of academic works outside. Um, outside paywalls, um, and it was actually a major BitTorrent site for um, the developing world. So this was a place, this was sort of like the, um, in, in many places around the, around the world where it's difficult to get access to, uh, to textbooks because of licensing issues. Um, library, uh, this website was one that many folks would turn to in other parts of the world, particularly in Russia. And I guess that's not really the developing world, but in other in other parts in Africa as well. So this was a popular uh, a popular site, not so much in the United States. Although students knew they could sort of find pirated textbooks there, but it was actually a resource um, internationally for academic content. So, kind of a difficult story, right? I mean, you can't necessarily justify that behavior, right? But it should it should be telling us something. Well, I think you know, I think that. If you talk to you know, you'll often hear um, folks who want to read a particular ebook, um, and they can't get, they don't have access to the ebook in their country. I mean, there's even difficulty getting access to to ebooks if you're a Canadian. You um, purchasing, you can't purchase every book that's available on the Kindle um, through the, the through the Canadian store. So 
those publishers have the, the the licensing around digital material is restricted country to country. So it's def difficult. In fact, I this is so bad for me to to admit it, but I'll, I will. He's my cousin. My cousin has written a book. Um, he's British. His book is available um, only on the Kindle if you're British or if, if you buy it in, from the British store. So I can't actually get my cousin Marcus's book on my Kindle um, since I I'm since I'm American. So I actually was looking for places to download it, but um, I guess I'll read the printed version instead. Of course you will. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I did note it that, uh, I don't know if it was this week, but I do know that Paulo Coelho, the famous Brazilian writer, right. has allowed all of his works to be released on pi what was Pirate Bay. Right, and I think it's the, uh, same, it's the same sort of gesture, knowing that people, I think that most people that pirate, they aren't sort of doing it to be malicious. Like I would, I would buy Marcus's book, but if I can't get it, what are my, what are my options? My options are probably to go to a, you know, to go to a BitTorrent site and 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 download it. Right, and in the past we would have said, you just can't get it. Right. But but now we have this expectation that uh, the, the knowledge should be a little bit freer than that. And and I actually feel like that's a positive impulse. I mean, I guess we're going to have to really work out the legalities of it. But I think that this idea that uh, I mean, there's there's so much that I learn from these digital, the the easy access to so much material right now, that it does seem a little unfair uh, to not have it available. And so hopefully we push more towards that in in ways that everybody feels are appropriate, right. or we figure that out. Right. Um, a little more detail on the Harvard Library restructuring. Is this less dramatic than we thought? Um, it still seems like it's rather dramatic. Um, um, and again, one to watch. Um, lib the Harvard uh, Research Library is offering early retirement to, um, to librarians over 55. And it looks as though they're actually switching a lot of the infrastructure, the technology infrastructure of the library, over to the university's IT department instead of having it run from within the library itself. So again, another interesting sort of, it's sort of hard to know if what how much is sort of um, departmental power play, how much is budgetary, um, and how much is sort of hype and hullabaloo, but it does look as though there's some massive restructuring. Um, and again, seeing the technology, seeing the technology move outside the control of the librarians um, is disconcerting. Well, as is, of course, mass layoffs. Right. This is the, this ongoing story for us. Uh, Wikipedia's limitations. This is what's interesting to me because I've actually had the same response to Wikipedia, which is I feel that in the move toward a neutral point of view, I sometimes wish I actually could just see the, the alternative views and so that the people who had different views could work out together that alternative view, almost like a Supreme Court decision, right? I want to see the the um, the majority view and I want to see the minority view. And I'm intrigued that, uh, sort of in thinking deeply about it, it's, it's true that Wikipedia doesn't really give you the full minority view. Yeah, this is, a, I mean, I think that this is a, a, this is a particularly interesting case, too, because, you know, this is somebody who, um, you know, this was a, a story in the, in the Chronicle of Higher Education, a history professor who's actually published a book on the history of the Haymarket, uh, the Haymarket Affair, um, and his view is a minority view. Um, but sort of, he's published the book, and he has sort of extensive, extensive research research about it, and he's struggled to get the right, the right information up on Wikipedia. Um, and it, it's interesting now that Wikipedia has changed, and they have sort of changed this entry to to, to reflect his um, his uh, his views. But I think that you know, I think it, you know, in Wikipedia's defense here, I think that it is good to remember that I think these sort of machinations happen all the time, and you can. You can sort of look at some of the history and see on a particular article when there's been controversy. Um, do they need to add more transparency so you can see sort of more about why edits have happened or not? Um, perhaps they do. And perhaps it's, again, part of this larger effort, I think, that we need to sort of educate people how Wikipedia and this collaborative encyclopedia writing actually happens, too. And probably more of us get involved in editing it. So it isn't just a small group of volunteers. 
interesting. My favorite magazine to read is one called The Week, and typically it gives both it sort of gives the both or the multiple varieties of viewpoints with a little bit of depth, and I like that. And um, so maybe I'm off base. Maybe I'm not thinking about Wikipedia in the right way. But I but I feel like the neutral point of view doesn't necessarily always allow the full flowering of the minority views. Right. So I, I actually would kind of be interested in seeing how that shifts. Okay, tell us about Girl Scouts and why they like hands-on STEM but are not as excited about career STEM. <laughs> so the, the, uh, the Girl Scouts of America conducted a, a research, um, an interesting research thing about girls' attitudes to STEM. And girls, you know, I think despite some of the stereotypes, girls love science. The research found that they lo- particularly love doing hands-on projects. They love problem-solving. Um, but despite being really excited and despite the research saying the girls knew that they were smart enough to pursue sort of careers and majors in STEM, they, a lot of them said they had no interest in doing so. And so I think it's, again, part of these struggles that we're facing in getting, you know, uh, appealing, uh, appealing to sort of um, demographics who aren't, who haven't sort of been, uh, who haven't been attracted to STEM majors and STEM careers, how can we get them involved? Because clearly it's not a matter of interest. There's still something missing. Um, and according to this research, one of the, one of the reasons that they, the girls said they weren't interested in it, it's actually because they said it was, there were sort of too many boys um, in STEM careers. So it's this, it's this, you know, it's this sort of vicious cycle that we can't seem to escape from. Where the where the room is full of boys and uh, few girls want to enter. Fascinating. Uh, the New York Times study on education gap between the rich and the poor. What did it show? Um, the the and we we spent a lot of time I think talking about um, some of the uh, racial divide in this country, the the achievement uh, achievement gap between um, white kids and kids of color. But according to some some. Some, le- some of the latest research, it's really the achievement gap between rich and poor that is growing and um, frighteningly so. And to me, this is sort of an, in, in some ways it feels very much like a no-brainer. And I think, but I think that we really don't talk enough about the ways in which poverty um, impacts uh, educational opportunity. Uh, and I don't know if sort of, I don't know if sort of a New York Times study or a story will help bring the discussion to the forefront, but I do feel like this is sort of a missing piece that we sort of neglect to talk about when we talk about why why some children aren't performing well in school. The answer seems less about the, the, the school itself and about sort of issues of issues of poverty. You know, I did interview that guy, Mitch Perlstein, on uh, the, the impact of the family on education. Mm-hmm. Has anybody to your awareness, looked at kind of sussing out the connection or the the connections or the differences between poverty and family structure? And how much of what we call poverty is actually difficult family structure and how much of it is actually just the fact that it's poverty? Yeah, I don't know. I Nothing comes to mind right off the top of my head, but I'm not sure. I'll have to keep looking at that. Yeah. Um, so Google's code-in competition... Yeah, I uh, like what is this is a yeah. What is it? Who won and why? And this is for a, what? This is a great Google has a number of uh, really cool programs that they do through their open source office. Um, this is this is one of them. They announced the winners this week. It's a online hackathon of sorts, a competition, coding competition for um, high school, middle school, high school age students. Um, and 525 students entered, and they picked they picked the winners this year. It was interesting to look at the location of where uh, where the where the winners come from. Um, a lot from India, uh, for example, and sort of thinking about where sort of um, sort of where do we see sort of the the future sort of future so, future software programming um, hotspots, uh, and are they in? You know, is this the UK in particular has has been sort of up in arms about? Um, about its IT education, sort of thinking about what are what are we sort of doing not doing well and getting sort of future students to become programmers. Um, and finally, you have more recommended reading. I do. Uh, and one is a recommended watch. Yes. The Brett Victor and Guiding Principles. That 
blew me away. Yeah, it blew me away too. And I thought, well, I don't have to do this work for Mozilla anymore because that right there. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, he, he's talking about, uh, in, I just watched the portion that you recommended, yeah. like minutes three to 16 or something. Um, and he's talking about actually being able to get uh, feedback from the coding work. But he says this isn't just related to programming. And he, right. he makes it clear this is sort of a broader lesson. lesson For me, I, the takeaway... Yeah. Yes. Yeah. The, 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 the takeaway for me was creation, feedback, and discovery. Yes. You know, and, that, uh, and I felt like that was such a good encapsulation of uh, learning and especially the ways in which technology is impacting learning, uh, whether it's programming or it's being able to do these things on the web. Well, I mean, I think that that, that I mean, I really cannot recommend that this video. Um, I, rec I can't recommend it highly enough. It was, I mean, my sort of jaw has been on the floor all week after seeing it. Um, because I think that there is, there's something in what he's talking about in terms of tapping into creativity that I worry we, we don't uncover when we, when we're sort of moving through the world of the WYSIWYG. Um, and, and we don't uncover when we're sort of when we're thinking about code, just in terms of code and not in terms of art. Um, and I think just thinking about how can we, how can we make the most of, of technology tools to sort of help uncover, uncover sort of creative insights that we never would have ordinarily stumbled across if we sort of worked through creation as usual, our own sort of whatever our sort of current tools are that we use to create, whether that's a pencil and paper sort of how can we enhance the, the creative spark it was it's a really interesting really interesting talk audrey another great week yes thanks for being prolific <laughs> <laughs> well you're welcome <laughs> anyway have a great week everybody right. thanks audrey bye-bye take care bye